Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I am the founder and president at ABS. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we welcome Nick Klinkafus to the podcast to discuss sexual orientation, gender identity within the autism community. Nick is a board-certified behavior analyst in the Salt Lake City, Utah. He has been in the field for about five years and is passionate about helping children with autism learn new skills. He's also part of the LGBTQ plus community and volunteers with local groups for the queer community. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. You know, I'm, I'm super excited to talk about this issue today because I think that this is something where, whether it's comfort level or even the amount of education and research out there, it just is not talked about, which mm -hmm. probably, like everything else in this world, creates more problems when we avoid a conversation than just having a very direct, informative share of experience. And so having you on this show, I think it's going to be really eye-opening. But it, I think it will help not only those who are listening and trying to learn, but it'll help those who are trying to educate and incorporate into treatment. So let's get started. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, a little bit of a background, um, and maybe we can start with just the idea of sexuality and autism. Mm -hmm. Why is that? And why is that such an important issue? Yeah, so there's been a lot of really interesting research suggesting that the correlation between autism and then LGBTQ identity is much higher than in um, typical populations. Some research has estimated that percentage is anywhere from 10 to 35%, which is suggesting that this is a very common thing for autistic people, especially as they grow up. So I think being aware of, these, of, this, of the LGBTQ community um, and how those issues relate to autism is super important for parents uh, because it's something likely that's going to come up during the course of their kid's life. See, those numbers that, that you put out there, Nick, to me, it just, it's very exaggerated compared to the normal population. Because if, mm -hmm. if I'm right, the, the most recent poll that, that I looked at, and I'm probably not a, a up to this as much as you are, but was in 2017 where we had 4.5% of the general population. So you're looking at somewhere between a 300% gains. I mean, you're right. looking at a, <laughs> such a huge discrepancy between the general population mm -hmm. and those with autism. And I tend to think that it's that higher percentage because of the trend where these numbers get underreported due to ongoing stigma of being queer, being LGBTQ. So most likely, I, I, it is that higher percentage, I mean, across the board, whether we're looking at typical populations or an autistic population. So. so with the autism community being less influenced by their peers, less influenced by society, is there any correlation to these higher rates of people who identify as LBGTQ to somebody who's, who's, autism and, who's autistic and maybe has a little bit more willingness to explore who they are, be more aware of just their own identity? 
Yeah, I think when you're looking at any group, which is a, a very large strength for the autistic community, is that they are less influenced by society and less influenced by their peers, and they have less of that social stigma that they're concerned about. And that relates directly, in my mind, to the concept of internalized homophobia or internalized transphobia, where they don't have that internal conflict um, or have experienced it to a much lesser degree and are therefore probably able to take a more um, stronger approach to any queer identities that they might have. So what what might that look like for somebody who's growing up and maybe... Um, uh, late teen and finally kind of experiencing some of the sexual awareness or even identity awareness of, you know, who I am. What does that, I guess, marching to the beat of their own drum or really just kind of immersing themselves on what I like or what I'm engaged in? What does that look like? Do you have any real life examples of, you know, what that might appear as? Yeah. Um, and this comes from, I can speak to my own personal experience having to go through that as, you know, a queer man growing up as well as, you know, what I've seen working with some children that I've worked with over my career. Um, I think when you see those interests in activities that are for one reason or another, highly gendered, I mean, for example, I like to play with dolls my entire life. Um, and that was an atypical thing for someone who's male identifying. Um, so that was like an earlier sign that maybe there was something going on there. Of course, my parents weren't fully up to what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I see that in some of the lives of my patients where they're just more interested in expressing themselves how they want to, regardless of gender expectations. Um, and obviously these are kids and we don't need to assign labels to anything. Um, that's not important to them right now, but allowing them that freedom, um, to explore themselves and wear nail polish or wear their hair in different ways. I think are very common ways that kids kind of show those things. Um, and how we react to that is a big deal, um, and creating a safe environment for them to do that exploration. So, I mean, you had mentioned toy play. You had men- mentioned clothing. I mean, are these kind of the, the core areas where maybe with a child is that you're starting to kind of see that they're exploring the environment around them or that they're a little bit more open to be themselves rather than conform? Is, is that the history that you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. Because at those young young age, I mean, sexual interest isn't on the table yet. I mean, we're just looking at, you know, play and creative exploration of their identities and what feels good to them. And leaving it at that and allowing them that space, I think, is super important at that level. Now, you had, you had just mentioned is that sexual awareness um, oh, I, I think that there's a common myth out there that um, autistics don't have a sexual desire, sexual awareness, um, aren't interested in sexual activity. Uh, can you can you dispel that myth? I mean, you've probably read a lot. You've had patience, and I mean, is is this real? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an easy jump for us to make because uh, it makes a lot of parents feel better about the fact that they don't need to approach sexuality related issues with their child but there's just no evidence to show that that's the case. Um, Autistic people have sexual feelings and sexual desires just as much as any typical developing person, and they often develop those things at the same timeline as a typical child does. Flip side of that, and probably a less common myth, is that 
autistic or disabled people are hypersexual or overly in- invested in sexuality. And that's also not the case as either. They, that spectrum of interest in sexuality exists in the disabled population just as much as it exists in the um, typical population. And what you're describing right there, Nick, it almost causes a little a little bit of fear in the fact that a lot of these children who um, maybe are on a different different developmental timeline, um, their milestones are being hit on different things, are still experiencing within their body a lot of those similar um, urges or trying to understand why they might have uh, a certain reaction to something that's more sexually oriented. Yet, the education for these children, um, even through treatment, because that's probably clinically the least addressed area within the field of autism, but also in the education system through special ed is that oftentimes those are the courses that they're missing, that they're opting out of. It, is this causing a big problem with being able to really understand, identify, and normalize some of the feelings they're having? I think so. I mean, as spotty as sex education can be, you know, in the mainstream classroom, um, it is highly likely that, you know, everyone in special education is going to be excluded from what little is already offered. Um, I see that very much as everyone kind of wanting to pass the buck in terms of who's responsible and who's going to have these conversations with their kids. Teachers want parents to do it. Parents say that they want to do it, but then they don't really have the knowledge or the experience or the comfort level to talk about um, sexual behavior or sexual relationships or even romantic relationships with their kids. I think there's Mm -hmm. a large reluctance to look at any child, anyone in the school system and think of them as a sexual being. I think that causes a lot of discomfort in us. And that's something that unfortunately needs to be addressed because otherwise we are continuing to send children of all disability levels into the world with very little knowledge about their bodies and how things work and how to keep themselves safe more than anything. Yeah. And when I'm looking at and imagining in my mind this dialogue happening between an educator, a medical professional, a parent, Mm -hmm. is that I also have the understanding that one of the biggest deficits within the autism uh, community, as far as the diagnosis goes, is the social understanding, social awareness, Mm -hmm. social communication. So being able to have a lot of these conversations, um, they're all part of the the deficits that could occur with somebody who's autistic. So how how do you balance that? Have you had any um, history working with families where they've had to address these issues? And how did they do it? Was it social stories? Mm -hmm. Was it uh, sitting down and kind of having books and visuals? I mean, how did how did that happen? Yeah, so I've had a varied experiences with these line of behaviors. And one of the first things that I did as a clinician was creating the space to make it okay for their child to have these interests and to have these behaviors, particularly as we are working with kids who are starting puberty and having these changes in their body, getting the parents to the point to accept that this is now a thing in their child's life enabled them to be able to help guide their child to explore those things in an appropriate way. And that was a big thing that we did with some of my patients. Some other ones that I've worked with, we used a lot of 
social stories and more like picture books, honestly, that have already existed in high quality and really nice to show different perspectives and how people can be different and how everyone still matters and deserves their respect. So that kind of social awareness of any different identity out there um, was really helpful for some children who are learning these new social rules and the more complex world that exists outside of their home and outside of their classroom. And those stories were very effective. Now, what, what do you see in the treatment world? I mean, if I go back to the late 80s, early 90s, and what was being taught to a lot of children was identifying boys based off specific things, identifying girls based off other things. What do boys do? What do girls do? It has the, the thought of engaging and treating and teaching some of these concepts of identity, have they changed over time or are they just being modified individually? You know, I wish there was more happening um, in this realm. I still see in a lot of my um, colleagues' programming, and even in my own, I tend to go for a very basic pronoun and kind of what you described is that very basic view of gender identity and not allowing any space for, you know, different diverse gender experiences. Um, I wish a lot more was being done and there was more research out that I'm aware of. Um, but as I'm currently aware, it's all happening very much on the individual provider level and their own experience and understanding of queer identity and how they're able to involve that in their clients programming. It sounds like with having a, what could be up to a third of the population of, of autistics that identify within one of the non-traditional gender identity roles. It's, it, it seems like this is long overdue. Um, do you, uh, do you have any resources or, I mean, when you're going through this process, are there ways that or places where people can go? Are there groups out there that can help with teaching these concepts? Absolutely. And I think what you'll initially find is a lot of very easy to process, and easy to understand resources for beginning to understand different sexual and gender identities. Um, the Human Rights Campaign or HRC has a lot of really good resources for parents who are preparing themselves to have a queer child, whether they know it or not, um, <laughs> and giving them the language and kind of normalizing these things uh, for their children. Um, so I re highly recommend HRC's um, materials. And I think that's something that we can put in the show notes uh, as an easy to access resource. Um, there's plenty of resources out there for queer parents or for children, of, for queer children, <laughs> for parents of queer children, um, and I think what needs, what needs to continue to occur is having this intersect between autistic community and queer resources and have that more presented. I was able to find a website, um, put on by the Australian government actually, that has a lot of information about these things of sexuality and romantic interest, dealing with autistic teenagers that I thought was also really helpful and could be a very good resource for parents. Yeah, it really seems as if there's a, I mean, there's so much aligned with the community at large is that you have a very active advocacy community in, in both the autistic and the LGBTQ communities out there that one of the biggest things in the world is that 
maybe there's that combination, that intersection of energy that can be used or kind of benefit both populations to be able to exhibit that pride, that identity, that um, self-awareness, but educate others in the process at the same time. I have, I've had pretty limited experience with older patients who are dealing with their autistic identity, but with some of the, my younger ones who have been informed and their parents have disclosed to them their autism diagnosis and what that means. Um, and I've seen some really beautiful things happen when that child knows who they are and has words for who they are. Um, on two different occasions, I've had um, kids present in a, a presentation, like PowerPoint presentation to their class, explaining about autism and what it means that when they say that they are autistic. And that was, I think, a very important moment for each of those two kids to be able to be in front of the class and share that part of who they are and have the language to do so. Um, I see so many direct corollaries between that kind of quote unquote coming out experience to what we typically see in the queer community um, and how empowering that can be when really well supported by people who care about them. So how else uh, can we prepare the youth? I mean, a lot of these children have been taught information in a very polar way. You're right or you're wrong. The rational, the, the reasoning skills aren't always the strength of the child. So if they've been told that they're wrong in a particular thought pattern for such a long time, and now we're trying to encourage them to have more self-determination on uh, what they enjoy, who they are, their relationships, the activities that they engage in, um, what they do with their life, their career. So everything that makes up who they are, mm -hmm. how do you encourage them to be that individual um, for a lot of the, the children that maybe have learned that this is what I'm supposed to be? Yeah. And I, that starts with the parents and how they talk about not only their child's differences, but the differences of others around them. I mean, they may not know at that moment that their child may end up being queer or may end up um, having a more diverse gender experience. So how parents talk about people who are different, and that's racial differences and class differences, and just how they talk about other people, I think is an important model for how these kids are going to view themselves if they end up being more different than they already are um, being autistic. I think other things that are important as well is, you know, giving permission to ask questions and let them be curious, giving them that space to do these explorations on their own. Um, whether that be with some, something super innocuous, like some of them different toy play or interest in doing things that are just not typically associated with the gender that they were assigned at birth giving them that space and having them do that exploration and then talking positively about those differences, I think is a super important foundation, um, you know, in the early childhood level. Um, what I'm hearing right now is uh, life lessons. What I'm not, it's, it's not necessarily associated to gender sexuality. What I'm hearing is, is what we probably have been telling our kids and hopefully continue to do going forward is be aware, accept perspectives of others. Mm -hmm. Ask questions, educate yourself, and then feel comfortable with the answers that you're coming up with individually and, and own it and, and be proud of who you are. And I think that's all walks of life. It just this intersection of having so little resources 
for a population that has such a high correlation to having specific gender or sexual identities, Mm -hmm. that's where it it seems to hit me as far as, you know, there's a little bit of incongruence of where we're putting some of the resources and hopefully we can start to resolve that. Um, So what are some of the thoughts that you have for empowering parents, empowering the community to really bring out the best in each of these children? So my recommendation for parents would be to take the time to educate themselves now. Um, Be proactive in figuring these things out and understanding the vocabulary that is likely to be used. So that way, if and when these things occur, your ability to talk with your child in a productive and helpful and supportive way you, you have the knowledge and the foundation already. Those first reactions to questions about sexuality or about possibly being a different gender um, are super important in tone setting for the rest of that kid's life when it comes to talking about these things with others. So I think being prepared is the biggest thing to help with your own internal comfort level and being able to talk about these things in the future. It's very wise. And, and on the same token, before, before we end our conversation today, I'd love to give you the floor to be able to talk to fellow clinicians, is that this is an issue that probably a lot of clinicians throughout the, the field of applied behavior analysis and psychology haven't fully explored. And it would be nice to hear a perspective on this. What could we be doing better? Yeah, I mean, I think having that baseline understanding, the baseline vocabulary of what gender identity is and what sexual identity is and how those are different, um, having that baseline language, I think, is like the lowest part that I would accept uh, for a clinician. And then understanding how those identities develop over time and what your patient might be doing that might suggest that there is another identity at play that needs to be supported and acknowledged and, um, you know, and given the space to flourish. Uh, I think clinicians like to think that they can handle all of the issues that they ever get thrown at. And I think sexual behaviors are ones that is definitely a brand of behaviors that clinicians need more support in and they need to go get specific training in. So don't feel that you have to have the answers for everything and knowing someone to go talk to who has more experience and specific training in these, I think would be a very important recommendation uh, moving forward. (laughs) I I appreciate that insight. And I think that there are a lot of topics where we need to have a community to be able to bounce ideas and to educate off of. And parents need that resource too, through parent support groups, Um, people who are living the same experience. Those exist for very, uh, a very broad range of subjects And it's not feeling scared to ask the question, not feeling like you have to have all the answers. And I think that it's something that we could all learn from because it's going to make us all better in the long run. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Nick. I think that there's a lot that's probably left on the table here because there's so much to explore. But at the same time, I think this is a starting point. It brings about the start of a conversation, which will allow people to start to grow. So we appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Nick's energy in tackling this very challenging subject for our field is what we need right now. Um, There's not a lot of people actively putting research into this, into understanding how to be able to really create awareness and uh, open understanding and acceptance of, of 
gender identity, sexual identity. And for a lot of our children on the autism spectrum, it's, it's something that they might have to deal with, whether it's they're dealing with it personally or in the community or with potential friends. And these are issues that need to be addressed. They need to be spoken about. And hopefully this is the first step to doing that. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all of the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS. ABS is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids, that's plural.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.